Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Good morning from the nation's capital. Welcome to the show, Just the News AM. I'm your host, Nicholas Ballacy, filling in for Carrie Sheffield. It's great to be back again hosting the show. We're excited to bring you a number of interesting guests today. But first, let's go to Texas Republican Congressman Michael Burgess. Congressman, thanks so much for taking some time to come on the show. Great. Thanks, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So first, I wanted to ask you about the vote that the House took late yesterday. Uh, why did you decide to vote against stripping Congresswoman Green of her committee assignments? Okay. It's such a terrible precedent that the majority party can kick the minority party, in this case, the Republican members, off of their various committees for whatever perceived uh, infraction. But look, nobody supports the comments that had been attributed to Representative Green before she was elected. She apologized on the floor uh, yesterday during the course of the debate. Um, Leader McCarthy had said during his debate that he had offered to move her to a different committee, but uh, Leader Hoyer re re refused that. They just wanted to go through this process to demonstrate to Republicans that we can take you off of any committee at any time. But look, if you play that game, it becomes very, very dangerous. I, for one, do not like the fact that there is a Democrat serving on the Intelligence Committee who's been documented to be hanging out with a Chinese spy. I think that that makes people very uncomfortable. So th th this is not something that has, has historically been done, that the, uh, that the party and the majority that has the votes begins to pick off people from, from various committees. It, uh, it, it certainly doesn't do anything to increase unity or, or camaraderie or the ability to work together. If you're always looking over your shoulder, is Nancy Pelosi now gonna pluck me off a committee because I said something? Well, I also wanted to ask you, too, about the reconciliation process that's starting. It's a big issue. Democrats point to the Republicans using budget reconciliation for tax reform in 2017 as a justification for using it now on Biden's close to $2 trillion stimulus bill. Do you think that's a fair comparison? Well, look, both, both parties use the reconciliation process. Uh, this goes back to the 1974 Budget Act, uh, recognizing the budgets are hard to pass. They only require 51 votes in the Senate. The House is always a straight-up majority, so it's not the same not the same equation in the House. But in order to to be considered under reconciliation, there are certain rules that have to be followed. So yes, in 2004, when I did my very first term up here, there was reconciliation. The Bush administration asked us to use reconciliation for one of the the Tax Cuts and Job Growth Act that, it, that occurred back then. Uh, yes, in 2017, reconciliation was used for a tax bill. 
uh, reconciliation was used to pass the Affordable Care Act, uh, affectionately known as Obamacare, back in, in 2010. So there are plenty of times where uh, both parties have used the reconciliation process. The 60 vote threshold in the Senate is the is is problematic from a House member's perspective. We always go on a straight majority. Uh, sometimes it is difficult for us of both parties to understand why the Senate can't move on something. But the fact that they have to get to that 60 vote threshold oftentimes makes for a more enduring product after it uh, gets through all of the debate. But uh, this time, the Democrats have decided that there's no need to work with Republicans. And here's here's the sad part. In March of last year, three big, big bills, rescue bills after coronavirus started, uh, passed with, with broad bipartisan support. So it demonstrates that it can be done. For me personally, the disappointment is that after that point, we never went back to our committees. I'm on Energy and Commerce, one of the authorizing committees. We never went back and looked at, hey, did we do enough? Could we have done more? And and had the hearings on what uh, what perhaps would come next. What did come next was an enormous bill coming just from the Dem Democrats in May uh, that had a lot of stuff that was unrelated to the pandemic that most of us just couldn't tolerate. It uh, bantered back and forth on that, but we never did the hard work of going to the authorizing committees and with a balance sheet and trying to do the, the nuts and bolts figuring of what is truly necessary here, what do we have to have to get through this, uh, what honestly could wait until some other time when, when the pandemic is not upon us. But we didn't do it that way. As you know, at the end of the year, there was a big compromise bill to, uh, uh, that did have $900 billion in it for coronavirus relief. There's a trillion dollars that's unspent in those funds between all the bills we passed last March and April and the one in December. Uh, there has been ample dollars pushed out the door. The question now is, how, if there is indeed additional aid that's needed, let's figure out where it's needed to go. But this reconciliation structure that they've pushed through allows for $1.9 trillion of, of deficit spending, but actually the upper limit is much higher than that because there are some things that are quite malleable, like the interest on the debt. Uh, our interest rate's going to stay low over the next 10 years. Well, not if we do deficit spending like we're doing right now. It's a, 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 You could expect that interest rates will go up. So that interest charge at the very end of the bill is likely to be much larger than what they've posted on the expected 10th year expenditure. Now, I wanted to get a quick take from you on the CDC director. The new one, she's saying that teachers do not need to be vaccinated in order to open schools. But then the White House walked the comment back, saying she was only speaking in her personal capacity. Do you agree with what she said originally? Well, first off, uh, just straight up, schools do, do need to be reopened. Uh, private schools, parochial schools are open. Those students are learning. And uh, in our public schools and Look, I'm from Texas. We fund a lot of our public education off of property taxes. No one has said, hey, you don't have to pay property taxes this year. No, our schools do need to be open. Uh, sure, we need to protect our teachers. And the good news on the vaccine front is, number one, that there is a vaccine. After we were told by all the public health experts that we wouldn't have a vaccine until late in 2021, we had it in late 2020. So that's great news. More and more vaccine is being produced. Another third vaccine is likely to get emergency use authorization. So I don't think the day is very far off where many, many more people will have access to vaccines. And I'm in favor 
of teachers being in one of the front lines to to receive those. They they do uh, they do a critical job, a hard job. But I also think that the CDC director in her initial remarks was was absolutely correct. I have not had a chance to speak with her directly myself yet. I throughout my tenure in Congress, I have always tried to have a close association with the CDC director, regardless of what party's in charge of the White House, because. It's an important function. Well, thank you, Congressman. We really appreciate it. We're going to have to leave it right there. But next, we have Sophie Mann. We'll be back. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to the show. I'm here with one of my colleagues at Just the News, Sophie Mann. We're going to go through the top headlines that we have up at Just the News right now. Sophie, thanks for coming on the show. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. So I understand one of the big stories up at Just the News is about Senator Cruz. He's placing a hold on Biden's Commerce Secretary nominee. Tell us a little bit more about what's going on there. Yeah, well, so as you said, uh, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas has placed a hold on Biden's Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, Commerce Secretary nominee, I should say. Um, this is not exactly an incredibly formal action. He has not yet you know, taken to the floor to say, she, I'm contesting her nomination. Um, though he may vote against it ultimately. She recently passed out of her committee hearing on a bipartisan vote. I think she passed through with a 21 to 3 vote. So it seems that she will uh, gain some bipartisan votes for her ultimate passage or not. Um, but what Senator Cruz is uh, concerned about at the moment is uh, Raimondo's failure to respond to the question of whether she will be keeping the Chinese telecoms giant Huawei on a U.S. entities list of companies that the U.S. is watching carefully, does not want to trade with, wants to limit their ability to perform in the stock market because of some national uh, national security concerns we've seen come to light, especially over the past year. So um, what he's a little bit concerned about right now is an answer that he felt was evasive when she was asked about whether or not she would commit to keeping Huawei on this entity list. And there are some other senators who've been pretty tough on China, so he might be able to get some support on that as well. I think that's definitely true. And I don't know that what he's looking for right now, especially because, as I mentioned, she seems to have some real bipartisan support. I don't know that what he's looking to do is block the nomination wholesale. I think he's just looking for a commitment, a verbal one at very least. Um, as you say, this has been an issue that people have been thinking about a lot recently. We know that uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo went on a big tour of our allied countries in Europe prior to the end of the Trump administration to really talk about Huawei, talk about their 5G aspirations, and talk about why we need to be very, very careful in the Western part of the world about sort of letting them into our networks, given that, you know, we don't 100% understand what their motivations are and exactly the relationship they maintain with the Chinese Communist Party. So um, I think he's just looking for a firm answer on this right now. And it, it, it seems like a reasonable thing to get. As I said, this is not an incredibly formal objection, really. It's just a letter that he sent to the Senate floor. Um, and it may be resolved, you know, in short order. Now, I understand also something else that's going on in the big headline, it's just the news, is about extremism and radicalization in the media. There's a member of Congress, Ocasio-Cortez, mm -hmm. who wants to start some sort of commission, correct, on this? 
Yes, I think she called it the Truth Commission or something of that uh, accord. We also have heard recently from the Biden White House that they're thinking of appointing what they're calling a reality czar, which is sort of a funny title, but um, somebody who they want to check the sort of spread of disinformation. Disinformation is a hard thing to pinpoint in such a partisan world because you know what the left says is disinformation is different than what the right says is disinformation. And truth, I think, in Congress has always been a little bit subjective at very least. But um, yeah, so we've seen Ocasio-Cortez you know, go on a number of television shows recently. We've also seen it from television show hosts. I, I recall a couple of nights ago, Brian Stelter said as much of CNN, um, you know, talking about ideas like limiting the reach of Fox News, cable giants, uh, let alone news sites like ours and sort of our colleagues um, that are sort of coming up in the media landscape. But this idea of some ob objective kind of, it's hard to even imagine who would go on this committee, but the idea of limiting the reach of what they have determined to be lies because they appear to be a different opinion. And I mean, I think a lot of people can agree right now that information is a tricky thing, uh, to handle on the internet and, you know, on cable television. But it, it seems sort of um, part and parcel of the issue that you have one of the leftmost members of Congress coming in and saying, we need to decide what the truth is, when we all understand that uh, what Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez says is the truth. I mean, especially given what's been going on with her this week may not align 100% with what, you know, even your average American believes to be, quote unquote, the truth. It will have to keep an eye on this commission for sure if the idea gets more support. I'm sure in that Congress. they will continue talking about it. <laughs> and uh, we also have the Biden administration trying to revamp the United States refugee program, admitting more refugees than the Trump administration allowed. What are the differences there between the last administration and this one, the key ones, key yes. differences? Yes. So, I mean, this was part of a speech that Joe Biden gave yesterday to the State Department. Um, basically, at the end of the Obama administration, President Obama uh, capped the number of refugees or set a ceiling at the number of refugees coming into the country at 110,000 per year. Um, the Trump administration really gutted that program. We know that Donald Trump had some tricky rhetorical issues around uh, the issues of letting refugees into the country. So they capped it at about 15,000 people per year and gutted a lot of the resettlement programs, which are sort of the uh, non-for-profits and NGOs that are sort of government funded in some capacity, but the ones that um, actually like recruit the refugees in their countries of origin, bring them to America, settle them in various locations. A lot of them are run through churches and the like. And uh, what the Trump administration ended up doing was sort of gutting a bunch of those programs. Now Biden's here saying we're going to bring that number back up to 125,000 refugees. That's his goal for fiscal 2021. Um, but what's really happening is that these programs, even the ones who are you know, very much in support of expanding the refugee program, are saying our infrastructure has been so thoroughly demolished by the Trump administration that that number is sort of unworkable. We don't, it's aspirational for them. Um, we don't think it's doable at the moment. We need some time to rebuild. This isn't something that can just come come to be overnight. But I do think it is notable that, uh, you know, one of Joe Biden's first points of order on this issue is saying we're setting that number at even higher than, you know, my liberal predecessor, the, the president to my vice president. Um, so I think that this is an issue that Joe Biden is really looking to take an exact opposite stance to Trump on. Now, I also saw that one of the headlines we've got that's getting some traction on our mm. site is San Francisco. They're taking action, legal action, to open up schools. Uh, talk a little bit more about what's happening in San Francisco and maybe even the national conversation over getting uh, children back to school. Sure. Well, as we just heard the congressman say um, in the last segment, uh, 
people really feel that schools should be open right now. This is becoming a major issue in, among other things, forthcoming elections. The House, of course, is up again in 2022. Um, and I think Democrats are getting a little bit concerned that parents of public school children across the nation feel that their kids need to be back in school. You know, uh, parochial schools, private schools have mostly reopened in some capacity. And what the data universally implies is that the spread rate of the coronavirus is extremely, extremely low. So the danger is, you know, at worst relative. And um, I think that at this point, we, we sort of come to understand that children learning remotely just is not even remotely on par with an in-person experience. A lot of kids have at this point lost a full year of their education. And what's going on in San Francisco, um, one of the most liberal, if not the most liberal city in the nation, is that even City Hall has begun to embrace this stance. They're saying it's time to get our kids back. We need to see some movement here. These are we're, we're not talking about the private school children. These are underprivileged kids in, in some capacity. They may not have access to you know parents sitting there watching them do their homework. Their Wi-Fi might be tenuous. Um, they need to get back in the classroom. And instead, what the San Francisco School Board has been focused on for the past week is renaming empty school buildings, um, getting rid of such names as George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, who aren't largely seen as controversial in the rest of the country, but in San Francisco are problematic figures. And what the school board is doing is concentrating on that instead of working through a plan to get kids back into the classroom. So even the mayor of San Francisco at this point is saying, guys, come on, we can focus on this later. Let's see a plan. Um, and they're going so far as to have some of the city attorneys drop a lawsuit to really prompt their board of ed to focus on what they feel is the most important issue at present. Well, Sophie, thank you so much. That was a great wrap up of what we've got on the site. Thank you. We'll be back with another great guest. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to the show. Our next guest is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Mark has testified before Congress on immigration policy, and he's a frequent guest on national radio and TV programs. Mark, welcome to the show. It's really great to see you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So to start the segment, I want to play a clip of Biden talking about these executive orders on immigration. Today I'm going to sign a few executive orders um, uh, to strengthen the immigration system, building on uh, the executive actions I took on day one to protect dreamers and, uh, and the Muslim ban and to better manage our borders. And that's what these uh, three different uh, executive orders are about. So, Mark, let's start with the public charge rule, which prevented immigrants from getting permanent resident status or green cards if they were likely to need some sort of taxpayer-funded benefits. Uh, tell us if that was a good move for Biden to change course on that. No, not at all. Um, the idea that immigrants should only be let in if they can pay their own bills, which is what we're talking about here, um, is older than the United States. It's actually the first principle of immigration policy, and it dates back literally to the 1600s in colonial Massachusetts. 
And it's in federal law. It's in the first federal immigration law. All that the Trump administration did was put some meat on the bones of that idea. And it wasn't, you know, all that super strict. It didn't say if you took a dollar of welfare, you know, you'd never get a green card. It was actually relatively, um, you know, flexible. But it was still too much for the Democrats because they are determined that immigrants, even those likely to use welfare, should be allowed to move into the United States. Poor, the immigration of poor people is something they defend in principle, and on, even though it's contrary to American law. And so it was no surprise that uh, Biden was going to do this. Well, when it comes to that issue, how do Republicans deal with that? Because you have the emotional side of immigration, right? You know, you know we want to take in individuals, that's what the Democrats say, individuals who are in tough circumstances in their countries. How do Republicans counter that argument from Democrats? Well, I mean, first of all, if we take in immigrants for humanitarian reasons, we that's what's called refugee resettlement or the asylum program. Those people aren't judged by the yardstick of uh, whether they're likely to use welfare. It's only people who are let in for non-humanitarian reasons. In other words, they have relatives here or they're let in for employment-based reasons. And in fact, um, if you're a sponsoring an immigrant, you're supposed to be, you know, you make a commitment that that person won't be using welfare. And what this executive order also did was revoke the requirement that if you're the person you sponsored uses welfare, you have to pay the taxpayers back. You have to pay the government back. That was actually canceled. So, um, you know, the point here is not that if you that that someone who's let in as a refugee would be thrown out or turned away if they would end up using welfare. They're not even covered by this. This is about non-humanitarian immigration. And frankly, it's pretty common sense. If you can't feed your own children, uh, why, you know, without using taxpayer money, why would we want to let you in? I don't get it. Yeah, that's an important distinction that you make there. There's so many different types of statuses when it comes to immigration. So I wanted to ask you, too, about Trump requiring undocumented immigrants apprehended at the border to actually wait in Mexico for their asylum court hearings uh, when they come in and they're apprehended at the border. Biden's reversing that policy. Do you agree with ending that policy and having those asylum seekers wait for their hearings and possibly not show up in the United States? Yeah, it was a big mistake to end this program. Um, the, the shorthand name for that is the Remain in Mexico program. In other words, you could come and apply for asylum, which in my opinion, you shouldn't even be allowed to do because you should be applying in Mexico. But under our law, even if you pass through Mexico, which has an asylum system, you get to apply for asylum at our border. But what Trump did say, and got Mexico to agree to, I didn't think they'd agree, uh, to Make, to make those people go back and wait until their dates come up, because it could be months or even years in the future. Well, that took away the incentive to make a bogus asylum claim in order to get released into the U.S., and it reduced these fake asylum claims at the border. Well, now that it's been reversed, bingo, immediately we now see a huge new spike in people crossing the border, saying the magic words of asylum, which they're coached to say by their smugglers, 
and then we're just letting them go. I mean, the Border Patrol is forced to take them to the bus station, and they're on a bus, and we may or may not ever see them again. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize the backlog there is right now on so many different immigration cases. Uh, it is amazing. If you go on the DHS website and USCIS, you can look at some of the times. Uh, people don't, I don't think, go on that site to see that. Look at the backlog times. So let me ask you about the DHS secretary, the new one who's coming in. You think he's going to take the agency in the right direction or not? No, I mean, he was the number two person at DHS under Obama. And so this is the way these things work. You know, you're out of power for a while. Your party comes back in and the people who were in lower positions in various agencies all move up to higher positions. So he was number two at DHS and now he's going to be the secretary. And the real problem is a couple of problems here. One is when he was at DHS, he basically made a push to rubber stamp applications. People had an immigration application. His mantra was get to yes. In other words, find a way to approve it rather than put the burden of proof on the person applying to make their case. The other problem is ethical lapses. Um, the guy's name is Mayorkas, Secretary Mayorkas. He's approved now. He's DHS secretary. Yep. When he was at DHS under Obama, even the USCIS employees who aren't the most hardline people, a lot of them are kind of come out of, you know, social work and what have you. Even a lot of them were complaining about how he was twisting arms to OK applications for Democratic donors and other supporters. And he was slammed by the inspector general of DHS for unethical behavior. And uh, they just, uh, you know, named him secretary anyway under Biden. Do you think that's a national security concern if you have, you know, loosening requirements for these uh, applicants? It could be. Uh, you know, it depends on the situation. I think the bigger problem is that it's a kind of sleazy, kind of Clinton-style sleaze ethical problem. But there's no question that there's at least a potential for national security problems. And, you know, God forbid that happens. But it's increasing the likelihood of something like that happening. Absolutely. Well, we're going to keep an eye on all of these issues as the new secretary takes over. And we'll have to see where he takes immigration policy. Biden looks like he's going to be making a push after the stimulus debate for comprehensive immigration reform with a path to citizenship. So we're going to keep an eye on that. Uh, and we'll have you back, Mark, to talk about it. Thank you so much for Happy coming to on. Do it. Thank you. All right. Next, we have Tom Schatz, who's going to talk about the stimulus bill, what's in it, what's not in it, what should be in it right after we return. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to the show. Joining me now is Tom Schatz, president of Citizens Against Government Waste. Tom, thanks for coming on. Happy to be on. Thanks very much. So for those in the audience who may not know, Tom goes through these thousand page bills, sometimes two or three thousand pages and finds 
what's in there and what could be potentially uh, wasteful when it comes to government spending. So last time I interviewed Tom about the CARES Act, which was the largest stimulus bill in the history of the United States, we discussed why deceased people were going to get stimulus checks in the mail. And voila, it started happening. So let me ask you this, Tom. Do you think that's going to happen again when the Democratic Congress passes this $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, what looks like it's going to be $1.9 trillion? Do you think it will happen again with these $1,400 checks? Absolutely, because the problem that caused the uh, money to go to deceased people last time has not been fixed. And it's a relatively simple fix. The Social Security Administration has what's called the master death file. It is not shared with the Internal Revenue Service. It is shared with other agencies, but not the one where you would really want it to be shared, which is the IRS. And there has been legislation to change that because apparently it requires a law for one agency to share information with another. And if they don't fix that, which I do not see in this thousand plus page bill, uh, they are going to once again send checks out to dead people. The reason being, of course, because the checks the economic impact uh, payments are based on your tax returns. So people who have received it understand they know this. They've gotten it either in their bank account directly or in the mail. So if somebody paid taxes two years ago or last year and has now passed away, that check is going to show up. And of course, there's fraud related to that as well. People keeping the names of their deceased relatives or parents or siblings and just collecting checks and they would qualify too, unfortunately. Now, I want to remind our viewers that they knew about this problem years ago, right? Because the, the, this is not the first time we've done stimulus bills, right? So they could have fixed this, what, 10, 15 years ago? It's not just uh, the stimulus checks. It's other payments that go to people who are deceased. Because, again, uh, they don't have a complete and full accounting and information, not just at the federal level, but sometimes states have information that doesn't get up to the federal level about people have passed away as well. So again, it's a matter of management, mismanagement really in this case. I, you, if you are in a business, you're not gonna write a check to someone who is not a, an appropriate vendor or customer. You're gonna make sure at least they're alive, I would think. Right, you would think. Yeah. So let, let me ask you this. You wrote a letter to Senate leaders saying that there's a $1 trillion of previous stimulus funds that remain unspent. And you've talked about wasteful spending in Biden's new stimulus plan. What would you say is the prime example of potential waste that you're seeing in the stimulus plan that's developing now? Uh, the $350 billion going to the states because they have not spent all of the first $150 billion that came through the CARES Act. And a good example is uh, Governor Jim Justice in West Virginia, a Republican governor, uh, who was so happy to announce a $174 million surplus in his state after the first seven months of the current fiscal year 2021, and then saying that, uh, so, so what that we uh, are going to go spend more money? Let's go big. We really need it. Uh, it's just it's so hypocritical that it's really hard to describe. And he's not the only one. People may recall last year that uh, Gavin Newsom in California, who's got other issues now and a big recall going ahead for the, his response to COVID, but he said, we're going to have a $54 billion deficit. That was May of last year. 
they have a $15 billion surplus. So why do, why do these states need any money whatsoever? And then you have other states like Iowa, Idaho, North Dakota, who do have surpluses, and they're not asking for any more money. In fact, Christy Noem, the governor of North Dakota, turned down money from the first round saying, we don't really need it. $350 billion is a, is a lot of money. I think it covers their budgets for a couple of years. It covers past uh, debts that they have for their bad pension plans in states like Illinois and New York. It's just a massive waste of money and a bailout for the blue states. That is a completely accurate description of what they're doing. And I also saw that you're supporting Congressman Bergman's call for a grace commission. You wrote a letter about it. You signed on to the letter. Do you see any reason why Biden wouldn't get on board with something like that? Well, the last Democratic administration that did anything in regard to any kind of study about wasteful spending was uh, was Al Gore as vice president, uh, where he had a, a group that looked at it. They didn't really do much. But the Grace Commission was uh, created under President Reagan. And we're very, very proud to uh, be carrying on what he wanted uh, us to do. He said to Peter Grace, who was the chairman of the Grace Commission, don't let this gather dust on a shelf. And here we still are fighting wasteful spending, promoting a lot of the Grace Commission recommendations and others. And as a result of the implementation of Grace Commission recommendations and recommendations from Citizens Against Government Waste, we've helped save taxpayers $1.9 trillion since the organization began in 1984. But it is certainly time now for a new Grace Commission. So Congressman Bergman from Michigan and Ed Case, Congressman from Hawaii, a Democrat, uh, agreed together, which is nice to see some bipartisanship somewhere, uh, to write a letter to President Biden asking him to set up a new Grace Commission. The full name was the President's Private Sector Survey on Cost Control. Uh, you have 34 signatures, a number of groups like CAGW, Americans with Tax Reform, um, National Taxpayers Union, and a few others also supporting this effort. So we hope that they will at least pay attention to it and talk about a way to help cut spending, which is what this would do. Well, Tom, we have to leave it right there. And we have to have you back at some point. We're going to have more when we return. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the show. We have Jason Steinhauer, a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a contributor to CNN and Time. He served as founding director of the LePage Center for History and the Public Interest. He's currently writing a book about the history of the Internet and he hosts History Club every night on the new app, Clubhouse. Thanks for coming on the show. Great to be back. Thanks, guys. So speaking of Clubhouse, I understand it's currently an exclusive invite. It's an invite-only group, right? You don't have access to it unless you're invited. So how did you get into this, and how does the app work? Sure. So for those who are unfamiliar, Clubhouse is a new social media app that is audio-only. So no memes, no videos, no photos, no clickbait. It's just voice. So it's basically like being on conference calls with millions of people from around the world. 
Uh, it started out as invite only because they just launched the app this year and it has just boomed in popularity. It eventually will be open to everybody as the Clubhouse team scales up. I should say for a disclaimer, I don't work at Clubhouse. I'm just a really big fan and a user, but it is blowing up. Uh, it's Elon Musk is now on it. Mark Zuckerberg is now on it. There's now 5 million people from around the world. And it's really amazing because it's just voice. So it's a real intimate experience getting to meet people and learn from people all across the planet. Yeah, I saw that Clubhouse has an investment interest of about a billion dollar valuation. I mean, that's massive. Do you think Clubhouse is going to be the next big thing for mobile apps, possibly the most popular one within the next 12 months or so? Yeah, I think it's possible. So it does have a billion dollar valuation. It's been uh, raising money um, through Andreessen Horowitz, the famous venture capital firm in Silicon Valley. The real trend here is social audio. So it's not just Clubhouse. There's apps like Sonar. There's apps like Soapbox. There's two apps called The Cookout. All these are based on the idea of voice. And so I think as we've seen over the past 10 years with Facebook and Twitter and other platforms that we've used, uh, you know, there's some fatigue uh, with the with the feed of of clickbait articles and memes and and posts that go viral and all the effects that that has on society. So, what would happen if you created platforms that were just based on voice and where everything was ephemeral, nothing was saved? So there's no virality, there's no incentive to game the system. You just talk and meet people from around the world, and that's what Clubhouse is, and that's what these other apps are as well. So. Let me ask you this, because you're writing about the Internet and writing your book. So what do you see as the most exciting aspect of the Internet's future right now? What's the trend? Great question. Uh, I think the trend right now is blockchain technology, uh, whether it be cryptocurrencies or other applications of blockchain technology. And what's fascinating about blockchain technology is that it promises um, complete decentralization. So basically, the Internet is not going to be stored on a singular location. It'll be stored on servers and computers around the world. And that has all kinds of interesting implications uh, for finance. You could actually do uh, transactions like real estate on the blockchain. You could publish on the blockchain. And you can have a unique, authentic record every time you do something that would be nearly impossible to change. So I think blockchain is where the Internet is headed in the short term. And I think there are a lot of fascinating applications that we've still not seen yet. Now, I'm sure you've heard about the potential for federal regulation in that area with blockchain. Uh, what do you see coming down the pike there that the federal government might get involved with? And do you agree or disagree with some federal inter intervention in that area? Yeah, so generally I think regulation can be effective. Um, it obviously needs to be balanced with the needs of users, the safety and concerns of users, and also the technologies and what they're capable of. I mean, in these kinds of situations, we've seen what happens when, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey goes to testify before Congress, and most members of Congress don't actually even know how social media works. So I'd be uh, you know, hard pressed to say that most members of Congress uh, today and most federal regulators are familiar with how blockchain works. So they're going to have to catch up and they're going to have to learn the implications of this technology, both good and bad, and figure out uh, what regulations make sense in order to protect people to make sure that people don't get, uh, you know, injured or harmed by these new technologies as they spread. You know, blockchain has already made so many advancements in the past couple of years, particularly this year during the pandemic. So I think regulators are probably behind, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world. 
And you talked about these new apps with a lot of users. Do you think we might see people gravitating away from Twitter and Facebook and using apps like Clubhouse instead in place of those social media platforms? That's a great question. And I can say anecdotally, that's already happening. I know in my own life, Clubhouse has replaced basically all the other social media that I used to use. Um, I myself was having some social media fatigue with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And the ability to just log on and have interesting conversations with people or host conversations around history like I do on Thursday nights on Clubhouse has just been a welcome relief. It's also a great relief from Zoom fatigue and all the other sort of video chatting that we're now doing all day long because of the pandemic. So yes, I think that's one of the reasons why Clubhouse is valued at a billion dollars because it does have the potential to take users away from other platforms. Clubhouse is also collecting some useful and valuable data uh, because the voice information that we give Clubhouse is part of what it uses to then turn around and attract investors. So the monetization of the data is also as valuable as the time spent on platform. And real quick, when can we expect your book to come out? Fall of 2021. Fall of 2021. All right. Well, look out for that. Audience, his book's coming out soon. Thanks a lot for coming on. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to see you guys again. Great to see you. We have more after the break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Just the News AM. I wanted to give you a brief recap of today's show. Once again, we've covered a lot of ground on today's program. We had Congressman Burgess discussing the latest on the reconciliation process in Congress regarding the large-scale coronavirus stimulus bill that President Biden is advocating for. The president of Citizens Against Government Waste, Tom Schatz, walked us through some of the problematic areas of the stimulus bill. Mark Gregorian detailed some of Biden's immigration executive orders and the effect that they will have on the nation's immigration system. Jason Steinhauer gave us a sneak peek into the up-and-coming mobile app Clubhouse before it becomes a national household name. At Just the News, we're keeping our viewers informed on all the latest developments in Congress and the White House, as well as breaking news, national security, and foreign policy reporting. So looking ahead, the impeachment trial of former President Trump begins next week. We'll be following all of the action, so be sure to check justthenews.com for updates. Tune in for this show again at 9 a.m. on Monday when Carrie Sheffield returns with a fresh lineup of guests. I had a great time hosting this show the last few days. So until next time, I'm Nicholas Balassi. Thanks for watching and have a great weekend.